Welcome to the Protestants and Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nap Nasworth. I've been exploring the intersection of churches, Christians, theology, and public life for over 20 years as both a professor and a journalist. But I still have lots of questions. I invite you to continue learning with me as I interview interesting voices in this field. The idea that there's a leftward political drift is completely unsubstantiated. And if you want to if you want to talk political leftward drift, I mean, you got to you got to define what we're talking about um, because the report really doesn't present any evidence that the RLC is distant from the formal documents of Southern Baptist life. What's going on with Southern Baptists these days? In my December podcast, we talked about critical race theory in Southern Baptists. The most recent controversy is over a task force report on the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which serves as the policy and lobbying arm of the SBC, and its president, Russell Moore, an outspoken critic of some of the alliances between evangelicals and former President Donald Trump. Among its findings, the task force stated, quote, that while much of the work of the ERLC is praised and appreciated by Southern Baptists, the ERLC is also a source of significant distraction from the Great Commission work of Southern Baptists, end quote. That sounds very serious. To help us make sense of what's going on, we need a Southern Baptist insider. My guest is Matthew Hawkins, who was policy director of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, previously under both Russell Moore and Russell Moore's predecessor, Richard Land. Matt is now a PhD student at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he co-hosts his own podcast called Crossing Faiths, a Christian and a Muslim talk religion and politics. Matthew Hawkins, welcome to the Politics and Protestants podcast. Thank you for having me, Nap. Uh, delighted to have the invite, and uh, we'll see if we can provide some clarity on what's going on in Southern Baptist life, but good to see you again, and uh, it's been a while. Yeah, definitely. We definitely want to focus this on uh, people who don't really understand the Southern Baptist Convention that much and is trying to yeah. get a better grip on what's going on. And I know we, you know, we've crossed paths a lot over the years. Um, and it kind of makes sense. We're both interested in religion and politics. Uh, I've, me from a political science perspective, and you've been studying it from an ethics and theological perspective. And uh, we, I covered uh, the ERLC a lot when I was at the Christian Post. And then also you worked with Dr. Richard Land when he was president of the RLC. And then at the same time, he was executive editor of the Christian Post where I worked. So we, our paths have overcrossed, overlapped a lot over the years, haven't they? That's right. That's right. I, I remember uh, reading reading some of your coverage of ERLC work while I was employed there. I haven't been there for uh, about two and a half years or so. Um, but yeah, our, our work uh, f- frequently overlapped, or at least your work covered my work, um, in a manner of speaking. And so, uh, it's, an, it's fun to collaborate here and, uh, Protestants in politics is, uh, generally, uh, my field of, um, interest, if not sometimes expertise. So I'm glad to have this conversation with you today. We probably need some, a little bit of background, right? Before we get to Russell Moore and the executive committee, I'm, I'm thinking we probably need to understand what is the Southern Baptist convention and then what is the ERLC? Does that sound like a fair place to start? That sounds like a good plan of attack. Let's let's define our terms. 
what's the Southern Baptist Convention? What's the executive committee? <laughs> what's the cooperative program? Right. And yeah. why was this task force created in the first place? Right. Um, so this is one of those questions that uh, you you have asked, uh, or uh, in my former role as a staffer at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, what is the Southern Baptist Convention, right? What is this thing um, uh, for which uh, that office is supposed to be representing its constituents in the in the public policy realm? The simplest explanation for the Southern Baptist Convention is it's the largest network of Protestant Christian churches in North America, um, second only in size as far as congregation and population to Roman Catholics. Uh, the Southern Baptists, as a body, as a as a as a you know a collaborative effort, um, it's the largest in in the country. Um, at somewhere depending upon the year, anywhere from forty four thousand to forty six thousand churches. Um, I haven't paid that that I haven't paid a lot of attention to that statistic, but that gives folks. Um, uh, kind of a sense of, of where we are. Um, it's title called the Southern Baptist Convention. It's one of the most regional names for one of the most national um, collection and networks of churches. So we're in all 50 states, we're in North America, and, and obviously Baptists are planting churches all over the world. That's a little bit of context. The second bit of information that's key here is that the Southern Baptist Convention, even though we talk about it in terms of a quote, denomination, unquote, it's not your typical denomination when we think about mainline Protestants like uh, Methodists and Presbyterians, and then even uh, organizations like the Roman Catholic Church. What does that mean? It means to be Baptist, uh, one of the key distinctives is that we believe in local autonomy of the church or autonomy of the local church, which means local churches govern themselves. And uh, there is no top-down hierarchy in the Southern Baptist Convention, right? So to the extent that any Baptist association, whether it's within the Southern Baptist Convention or uh, any other kind of Baptist association, to the extent that Baptist churches are collaborating together, that's all voluntary. Uh, We're saying, look, uh, we recognize that we don't have authority over one another, um, but for the sake of advancing the gospel, we recognize we can do more together than we can apart. And so we're going to do these things like associations and state conventions and national and a national convention. Um, with that, uh, there are funding mechanisms, right? Uh, and so in the national level, we call that the cooperative program. Again, cooperative is in the name, right? So you see a pattern here. We're con- it's a convention, uh, it's cooperative, um, it's entirely voluntary. Um, so that's a sense of the of things. And that those kind of modifiers or those distinctives are really key uh, to understanding what's going on in convention life right now. Um, some of the things that Southern Baptists combine or co- you know, uh, cooperate together to do include raising up, training, sending missionaries abroad. The largest chunk of cooperative program money uh, goes to the International Mission Board, uh, which is in charge of foreign missions, basically. And then the next largest chunk is the North American Mission Board, which stays domestically, mostly, um, to raise up pastors and plant churches all over North America. And so real quickly, about well into the 70 percentile, I'm a little foggy on the precision, uh, at least 75% plus or minus of cooperative program dollars go straight to planting churches, training pastors, sending missionaries, right? That's the bulk of what we do. Um, After 
you fund those two um, significant organizations. Basically, uh, those are what we call sister entities, right? So the North American Mission Board doesn't have any authority over the International Mission Board, right? Uh, and neither of those two organizations have any authority over the local church, right? Um, these are collaborative efforts. Um, after that, um, there are six Southern Baptist seminaries, uh, all of which get some portion of the cooperative program. And then there's a library and archives that gets some, and then you get, start getting down to smaller and smaller pieces of the pie, and you get uh, an entity called the Executive Committee, which we'll be talking about today, uh, and they their primary task is for organizing the cooperative program, um, promoting the cooperative program among among churches, and seeing that the funds are are doled out appropriately. Also. Uh, the executive committee is responsible for making sure the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention takes place. That's where we conduct all our business. That's where we set budgets. That's where people get appointed to, yes, committees. Baptists love our committees. And so once the uh, executive committee gets gets some of that money, you get down to the smallest sliver of the pie, <laughs> the smallest sliver of the cooperative program pie. And the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission gets one65 percent of money given to the cooperative program. And uh, with that, they staffed two offices, one in Nashville, Tennessee, and one in Washington, D.C. Um, both offices I had the opportunity to work full-time in, um, which is probably even more rare than having worked for both Richard Land and, and Russell Moore. But uh, we're commissioned to assist local, I say we, I'm not there anymore, but uh, force of professional habit. The Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is commissioned to represent uh, local churches in the public square and to assist them in navigating uh, public policy, moral and ethical concerns. And uh, it is the most dependent Southern Baptist entity on the cooperative program. What that means is the ERLC's annual budget, more of that revenue comes from the cooperative program than does any other Southern Baptist entity. Um, for example, the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board um, each have annual offerings, one at Christmas and one at uh, Easter. And both of those organizations raise approximately 50% of their annual budget through those dedicated offerings. And of course, seminaries are higher education institutions, and so they have their own development offices and alumni networks and that kind of thing. So uh, you see really quickly that other Southern Baptist entities are able to supplement their cooperative program revenue with other mechanisms that the ERLC just doesn't really have just by nature of the institution. Um, that's that's no, no ill will expressed towards anyone. It's just an interesting fact uh, about how, how dependent upon sub, uh, cooperative program dollars the ERLC is. Why was the task force created? That's an interesting question. So relative to the ERLC, the executive committee, again, is a sister entity. All the Southern Baptist entities have their own governing boards of trustees. And trustees are Southern Baptists selected from churches from around uh, the country. They're appointed um, have the, with decisions that come out of the annual meeting. And so the ERLC has about, typically when I was there, it was uh, kind of mid-30s as far as the number of trustees we had from coast to coast. Um, and I'm going to plead ignorance on how many executive committee trustees there are, but the executive committee has a board of trustees. There's some discrepancy and some disagreement within Southern Baptist life as to the um, 
the appropriateness of one entity like the executive committee uh, forming a task force to, quote, review and assess another ministry, another sister entity, uh, because it sounds like a hierarchy. Um, now, there are those with a greater polity expertise within the SBC uh, that gets out of my uh, understanding pretty quickly. Um, I think it's not a great look, even if it's um, uh, even if it's you know by the letter, uh, you know, legal and appropriate. Um, but it's not a not a great look. All that to say, there's a disagreement on whether or not it's appropriate in executive committee's uh, defense. They are responsible for promoting the cooperative program and managing it and making sure, uh, trying to get those cooperative program dollars on the increase um, when they have been waning in recent years. Uh, so that's a concern. So their justification is basically cooperative program dollars are slipping and we need to get to the bottom of this. We need to um, figure out to what extent controversial political issues are playing a role in churches with withholding um, their donations to the cooperative program. And so that was basically the justification um, for what the task force started this time last year. So early 2020, uh, they commenced a, um, a decision to review and assess the work of the ERLC. And they sent apparently um, uh, basically anonymous questionnaires to all the state conventions Um 14 conventions uh, replied. Um, they're not, I don't think there are quite 50 of them, but they're a lot more than 15. Um, and uh, they got back and re have reported data and, and some opinions basically um, from around convention life, mostly reported through state convention executive directors. The, in the background prior to when the executive committee commenced this task force, the year before, there had been an attempt from the at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. I think that was 2018. No, no, no. It would have been in 2019. 2020 was skipped because of COVID, so this would have been 2019, I think. Anyway, somewhere in there, 2018 or 2019, forgive my memory on the details, um, there was an effort to what they call defund the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, that motion failed on the floor. Um, and again, this is, imagine a giant conference room. Uh, the Southern Baptists hold the world record unofficially for like the largest meeting governed by Robert's Rules of Order, right? Um, and so people lift their ballots. And uh, if, it's, if it's nowhere close, then you don't have to submit the ballot, right? It's that kind of thing. Um, overwhelming uh, defeat of that motion to defund the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And I'll point out, again, the annual meeting is kind of a focal point. It's where convention life manages itself. It's, it's a democratic function and, and churches either send messengers or they don't. Uh, and uh, we decide on a whole host of things at that annual meeting. Um, so in the background, prior to the executive committee task force, or the executive committee committing this task force, there had been an attempt at the convention level, at the annual meeting level, uh, to defund the ERLC that failed. Why are people trying to defund the ERLC? Well, for some historic context, I'll just quickly note that people have been trying to defund the ERLC almost since its inception uh, in the early uh, earlier part of the 20th century. So, uh, some of this is uh, you know rhymes with history, uh, but just looks a little different. There's been a split. Um, what's not what's not uh, private at all is that um, since the era of Donald Trump. Um, 
Russell Moore and the many other evangelicals have not been on board for the whole, uh, you know, uh, un, you know, un, unchallenged, uh, full-throated, enthusiastic support of, of, um, of uh, candidate, then president, and then former president Donald Trump. And Russell Moore got a lot of blowback from that. And there were about a hundred churches. Again, a hundred churches out of approximately forty-five thousand churches, who early in the Trump administration had attempted to withhold uh, co- cooperative program dollars uh, because of Russell Moore's um, opposition to Donald Trump. That's a really unfortunate. Yeah, let's just clarify here. He never said don't vote for Donald Trump, right? right? And he said he even said something like, "I, I can understand if you, uh, you know, feel like you had to vote for him because of an uh, anti-Hillary vote or something like that." Right. Uh, so, it, and he never, and he never said vote for Clinton or vote for Biden or anything like that, which right. is different from other Southern Baptist leaders who have actually come out and said, "You know, I'm voting for Donald Trump." Yes, I, and I think you're. I think you're absolutely right, and appropriate for this podcast in particular. What you probably recognize, Nap, is that floating in the background is kind of a lot of assumptions about uh, religious leaders and politics, and and how religious leaders go about engaging the political space. And a lot of the, the assumption is is the the what you can do is endorse or not endorse candidates, right? It's a it's a pretty binary uh, kind of action. We, we can save my soapbox for it for another time. I really don't think it's wise for religious leaders, uh, particularly pastors, to be endorsing candidates. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that. It's not, does, it has nothing to do with the IRS tax law. Uh, I, I think you're, you're wielding spiritual authority uh, and influence to uh, re- an institution that political parties, even when they most agree with me or you, um, they have no responsibility um, for the local church um, or an ecclesiastic body. It's just different. And so when someone endorses a political candidate, all the risk is on the religious leader. Uh, and I think it's it's religious leaders unwittingly often um, playing by the rules of the political party. Now, I worked for the ERLC doing public policy for many, many years. I was in Capitol, on Capitol Hill for eight years. I was in broadcasting from Nashville um, for the previous nine. And so I believe that Christians should be influential in the public policy square, but there are different ways to do it uh, other than candidate endorsement. But I think the endorsement grid uh, through which a lot of people think about religion and politics, I think that's you, it's kind of unmistakably there, right? And so the assumption from a lot of people is the way you influence public policy is get your guy into office. Um, and so even, you know, even where people disagree on, you know, you know, supporting this candidate or supporting that candidate, I kind of want to take a step back and be like, what are we, what are we talking about here when we're talking about a religious leader endorsing a political candidate? I think it's, it's, it's fraught with <laughs> uh, landmines. Uh, and I think that's borne out in the last few years. We originally started talking about this because when the report came out, uh, you were tweeting stuff about it, and I was tweeting stuff about it, and yeah, uh, and sharing with each other. And uh, so, just share, you know, for the listeners, what what was some of your initial reactions to the report? Yeah, so I wanted to look at the report, um, and well, I 
clear. I mean, you know, like you're you're a journalist, Nat, and uh, you're going to recognize bias. Uh, and I was an employee for 17 years at the ERLC, so I'm not going to try to hide my bias. I'm I'm clearly pro ERLC here. Um, but the people who present this report are still brothers in Christ, and uh, even fellowshipping so much as to you know join me in in identifying as Southern Baptist, right? And so we're we're cooperative. We're people who are supposed to be cooperating together, right? And uh, so I, I take that seriously. Um, even where we disagree, I want to want to try to be as charitable as possible. Reason I decided to make some comments uh, on Twitter about this. Typically, look, the RLC is a his, it's a basically over a hundred year old institution. Uh, they can fend for themselves. Like they're, they're big boys and girls over there. They don't, they don't need my assist to defend them from, uh, uh, you know, controversy, uh, that frankly is common in ERLC work. But I felt like I had a perspective given that I had worked for both Russell Moore and for Richard Land, uh, five years under Russell Moore and 12 years under Richard Land, um, to show that there's some, there's more continuity between the two leaders um, and the two eras than is often presumed. Um, some of the complaint or rumor, I would say, about the ERLC is a supposed, from from the report, um, mind you, a quote, uh, left, quote, leftward political drift, unquote. I'm sorry, that's nonsense. <laughs> it's it's unsubstantiated. It, I'm not denying that people think that, I was, you know, had the opportunity as a staffer for many years to field emails and phone calls from constituents who genuinely were asking questions about our work and what we did. And I was happy to be able to provide text and and facts and uh, documentation about what the ERLC's position was and, and what we were uh, trying to advance in the public square, what, what you know, Richard Land had said and did and uh, what Russell Moore had said and did or what they didn't do, uh, in a contrary to rumor. The idea that there's a leftward political drift um, is completely unsubstantiated. Uh, and if you want to, if you want to talk political leftward drift, I mean, you got to you got to define what we're talking about um, because the report really doesn't present any evidence that the ERLC is um, distant from the formal documents of Southern Baptist life. What are those? Um, again, we're cooperative, right? So there's no top-down hierarchy. Um, there's no catechism <laughs> in Baptist life, but there is the Baptist faith and message, which is a statement of belief, and which is easily e- easily searchable. Most recently revised in the year 2000, uh, and then resolutions are passed every year, typically about you know nine to twelve, um, and those are typically about current issues that Southern Baptists are talking about. Those are, again, are non-binding. Um, but the extent that you can get a consensus about whether Southern Baptists are on an issue, uh, Richard Lane was fond about saying we would never, we never wait for uh, unanimity because <laughs> we'd be mute. Um, but we do, we do speak um, in, in consensus. And uh, so those, um, those resolutions speak to on ethical and moral issues, everything from abortion to, um, uh, um, just war theory to, uh, cr- you know, uh, critical race theory, like you mentioned, um, and everything in between. And it's, again, it's non-binding, but it gives a, gives a sense of where the convention is. And so that's 
technically it's an internal document, but as a journalist who covered it in the news, it's also a very public meeting and a very public statement about things. So it's kind of both, you have to kind of read it through the lens of both. It's an internal statement and uh, people outside the convention are going to read it. All to say, I looked at the reasons um, the task report report, um, the executive committee task report report in section eight reports some of the reasons, uh, the concerns, quote unquote, um, that they were hearing in these reports from state convention execs and the list of them. I'm, I'm sorry, Nap, like it just doesn't, it just doesn't substantiate anything. Um, there's rumor and conspiracy theory in this. Um, there is, maybe some areas where people just need to be a little more familiar with Southern Baptist stance on, on some issues like immigration uh, as expressed through the SBC resolutions, but there's really no there there. I mean, the short of it is look, if, if this are the complaints about the ERLC and Russell Moore, Russell Moore and the ERLC are going to continue to serve Southern Baptist uh, for years to come. Um, I don't know if you, if you want to go into detail on some of those things uh, in the Section 8 thing, but that that's really what prompted me to say, wait a minute, folks. I was part of the ERLC for 17 years. I worked for both Russell Moore and Richard Land. Richard Land was the first entity head uh, appointed coming out of what's called the conservative resurgence. Now, that's a separate story for a separate time for those unacquainted with Southern Baptist life, but it was a big period of time in the late 70s and most of the 80s, where Southern Baptists, uh, through the democratic processes of the annual meeting, basically took back control uh, from leadership in these entities that really were um, theologically liberal. Um, And so, you know, biblical inerrancy was the issue of the day uh, for those folks. And Richard Land was one of the first first folks to be appointed to lead an entity, um, then called the Christian Life Commission, after the conservative resurgence. Uh, Albert Moeller was the first... Um, and the first seminary president to be appointed coming out of that year of Southern Baptist. And I just want to underscore the continuity between that era of theological conservatism to the present day for folks. Uh, and I think a lot of that gets lost in, um, in kind of the contemporary pol- political debates. Um, and so that's why I, I decided to voice um, some, tried to voice some insights and some historic context. Yeah. I remember when Russell Moore first took over as head of the ERLC. And a lot of the news stories back then emphasized, you know, this big shift, the generational shift and all these sorts of things. And I remember at the time thinking, well, there's not enough emphasis here on the continuity that's taking place. That's exactly right. Uh, and just, and and so that's what I emphasized in my reporting is just, uh, you know, the, the consistency between Richard Land and Russell Moore and what was taking yeah. place. Yeah. And just to I, give I one right. example on, and so one good example would be immigration. Sometimes that's used as, as an example of, you know, Russell Moore is a liberal or whatever, you know. But the ERLC joined the evangelical immigration table under Richard Land. There was, right. there was no inconsistency between Richard Land and Russell Moore on the issue of that's immigration. Right. Yeah. And it's it's more conservative now than it was under Richard Land because Jim Wallace and Sojourners left, right? So like the immigration table has shifted rightward. Um, if we're talking, uh, left, right, um, political, um, uh, bents and, and certainly, and certainly, um, uh, if we're talking about liberal versus conservative, uh, theology. So 
<laughs> that that coalition is is more rightward under Russell Moore than it was under Richard Land, uh, which a lot of people don't know. But the immigration topic is a is a is an insightful one to talk about. Yeah, and I would add to that, and that's only in today's context where mm-hmm. you had uh, you know Donald Trump, the leader of the Republican Party, where immigration is now considered to be liberal if you're pro-immigration. That's traditionally that's not the case. You know, the, the conservatives have long been uh, strong supporters of immigration. Yep. It's just under today's political climate that's considered a left. Uh, you know, you're a liberal if you're pro-immigration. Have me back and we'll talk all about immigration someday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. I love to talk about that that topic. Yeah. But the, the point is, um, just just real quick, is that um, one of the bullet points in the Section 8 of the task force report is, quote, ERLC stance on immigration. And nothing more is said. And so this is an issue of concern. Yeah. But no one has gone so far as to show any daylight uh, between Russell Moore's ERLC and convention uh, resolutions, um, and so which they've passed three <laughs> over a decade and a half. Uh, the the first one I remember was 2006. There's another one in 2011, and I think you might have better recollection of me. I think they did another one in 2018. Um, so there've been three, and they've been all they've all harmonized with one another. And so there's you know if you don't like the ERC stance on immigration, you don't like the Southern Baptist Convention's stance on immigration. Now, there was another section of the report that kind of confused me a little as to why it's in there. Maybe you can shed some light on it. There was this whole section about an amicus brief and yeah. an appeals court, <laughs> and it, it didn't seem to have any relationship to you know the issue of cooperative program giving. I mean, there's no like accusation that Someone saw this amicus brief right. and said, oh, we need to stop giving to the cooperative program. And so maybe there's an issue there, but why is it in this task force right. report rather yeah, yeah. than just being dealt with individually? How did that end up in there? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's an interesting thing that it shows up there because the thing that, you know, the executive committee was prompted about a year ago to start this task force um, based on what they said were um, churches withholding and downward trends. Um I will note, however, there was a Baptist Press article one year ago, a week ago, um, that that was lauding an increase in CP giving just before the pandemic. Uh, and so there were upward trends at the end of 2019 going into 2020 um, that Baptist Press and the executive committee themselves reported a year ago um, prior to commencing this uh, task force uh, to assess the ERLC. Just an interesting tidbit. I don't think that report um, from February 2020 uh, made it into this task force report um, that, again, reported upward trends in CP giving. Uh, That's just an aside. The amicus brief critique um, is a critique uh, about some of the the ERLC activity, uh, I guess, what, third to fourth quarter of, uh, of 2020. And... One of the things that the ERLC does is represent the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, or the interest of the Southern Baptist Convention to the three branches of the federal government. Um, we engage it, or I say we, the ERLC 
uh, engages at the state level, but typically only by invite of local state conventions. Uh, number one, again, we're, it's a small organization, 1.65% of cooperative program dollars. Um, and, uh, and we haven't really been given that mandate from Southern Baptist to um, engage at the state level unless uh, there's a collaborative issue that uh, clearly is going to, there's a state level issue that's clearly going to uh, resonate at the national level. That does happen sometimes. And, and typically, ERLC will collaborate with state level um, Baptist uh, to assist with that. Um, one of the things we do, um, again, Sorry, I, I said we for 17 years at, at ERLC, so I keep stumbling over myself when I say that. Uh, the ERLC, speaking you know, in, a, in, in a different organization, one of the things they do is sign on to Friend of the Court Briefs. ERLC does this frequently. They went to digital several years ago, so I... They used to be, you know, they used to come in stacks. I think they were like green paper covers. Um, but if if you were to stack them up next to me, the the number of Amici uh, that the ERLC has signed on to, you know, since in the past two decades would stack at least to my ceiling here. Uh, so it's something that they frequently do. And Amici are crafted in different ways. They're almost always written by attorneys. Uh, they have to be filed by a law firm um, and they cost anywhere from a thousand to $2,000 for the mechanism to do that. And uh, sometimes a organization like ERLC, we, we will, they will hire out uh, the drafting or certainly the filing of that. Sometimes they'll write it in-house with some uh, attorney guidance. The ERLC currently uh, employs full-time one, um, one attorney basically general general counsel who used to be my boss but otherwise for years even before they had even between the years in which they had an attorney on staff they would they had a network of you know southern baptist friendly um attorneys that would work for them but sometimes frequently in capitol hill it's a collaborative endeavor and some organizations are able to basically lead on a particular initiative whether it's a you know supreme court case like hobby lobby or the little sisters of the poor um, or any number of uh, lawsuits there's often there's a there's a collaborative effort by different organizations will kind of take the lead on drafting certain amicus briefs and amicus briefs are usually typically filed with a really narrow argument um, to complement other arguments in other Amici. And uh, so we're typically signing on as a Southern Baptist entity uh, to those. One that the ERLC joined was an, an Amici aimed at a case called McRaney versus North American Mission Board. We won't have to go into details about that. Um, basically, it, it does appear to be a, uh, it's a discrepancy, um, kind of a conflict between a state convention uh, actor and uh, the North American Mission Board, which again, in SBC Life is a national organization. Um, but basically, the critique that ERLC received on that is the fact that, and again, this is ERLC's own explanation, they basically joined onto a brief that somebody else wrote, uh, Thomas More Society, uh, who are religious liberty attorneys. But the language inside that brief basically described the Southern Baptist Convention as an umbrella uh, organization with a kind of hierarchy, which, of course, based on our earlier conversation uh, doesn't sit well with Southern Baptists, right? Um, and so people can read that a couple different ways. Uh, the ERLC look, said, look, the timeline was fast on this. We had a decision to make. We felt, I think, I think the rationale was basically, if I could, you know, paraphrase is we felt like we needed to be, uh, to participate in the brief. Um, but 
we recognize that that kind of hierarchy kind of language is really anathema to Southern Baptists. Uh, life, um, and we we know that because we deal they deal that with with that every day, right? And so there's some griping about that. But the ERLC at the time uh, apologized um, and issued volumes of explanation and report, and even sent um, an update to the court in question, right? So the court that received that document also received um, the ERLC's clarification uh, of what they mean by that. People are going to read into that different ways. Uh, some people read nefarious motives into the ERLC. I, of course, work with the same people who made these decisions, so I don't see uh, nefariousness. Uh, I did kind of hang my head uh, when I saw the news report last year about that because it, it, it clearly was a mistake. Um, but I think it's a good faith mistake. Uh, and quite frankly, because you know we, you, you guys witnessed and listened to me explain Southern Baptist life to people, that's because it's not intuitive, right? And so if you have someone from outside uh, a tradition that emphasizes autonomy of the local church, uh, like say Catholics or uh, Presbyterians or Methodists, you know, sometimes they get the terminology fuzzy and imprecise. Um, and I think that's, I think that's the, the way to go here. Um, I think the ERLC joined a brief where the language that talked about our structure and polity was not great. It was not terribly Baptistic, but I think we cut them some slack on this. That's my take. Yeah. So the, so the executive committee reached out to the state conventions for feedback, and that's like mm-hmm. one of the feedback they got is that they had to complain about this. But the, the, was there any congregations that said, oh, no, we can't give to the cooperative program anymore because of this amicus brief? That, I mean, that would be kind of crazy if that happened, right? It, it, to, to me, to me, it would be a little crazy. It would be unfortunate um, for a mistake that was, you know, owned and and you know apologized. So I have to ask at some point for people who, uh, for whom that apology is not acceptable. I'm like, what's our threshold for forgiveness here, folks? Um, they they said it was a mistake. They implemented new guidelines for when they make these kinds of decisions. And I think you give brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt on those kinds of instances. And yet, and to the extent that there's, you know, any particular churches um, who said they were withholding because of that amicus brief, we're not told by the report. Um, and so, again, this report is what we're gleaning from here has been given to us with anonymity. And so there are no state conventions or pastors or churches who are owning these statements and saying, this is my particular problem with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is really unfortunate, um, particularly due to the disinformation that's in Section 8. This could be a ripe opportunity for the executive committee to have been able to clarify for Southern Baptists um, that the ERLC, number one, is... uh, really, really in line with the Baptist faith and message and resolutions passed at the annual meeting and, and, you know, clarify issues of fact, you know, there's an accusation of the ERLC receiving funding from an organization with ties to George Soros. You, I think you remember that controversy, controversy nap. Uh, you might even reported on it. Did, right, did you find right. any I, I rep- ties between yes. the ERLC and George Soros funding? That, that was that was a totally bogus accusation that I reported on back when I was at the Christian Post, and uh, it was related to the fact that uh, another organization that was part of the EIT or or cooperated with the EIT in some way had gotten funding for a wholly different project that was unrelated to what it was right. doing with the EIT. Right. It's like <laughs> it's like five steps removed, and I, I remember at the time that uh, you know 
when we reported on it, we got the reaction from Richard Land, and he was like, you know, if George Soros wanted to fund what I support, then why, why would we have a problem with that anyway? But they, he, they weren't getting any Soros funding. But it's something. It's one of those things that just keeps popping up every time you hear a complaint about the ERLC. It's like the Soros funded ERLC. It's like, come on. That's yeah, I mean. Before all the cultural chatter about conspiracy theories, we used to call this stuff urban legend. Um, you know, again, this yeah. this cropped up when I was when I was staffing, when I was doing immigration advocacy work, uh, and it was it was it was always pretty ridiculous. Um, we take our marching orders from uh, the messengers at the annual meeting in the convention, basically, uh, and so to let those kinds of remarks stand unquestioned and unclarified. And a report like this was pretty mystifying to me, I got to say. Yes. Well, Matthew, this has been very enlightening. Uh, before I let you go, I think a lot of people who listen to this pro- podcast would probably also enjoy your podcast. So could you just tell us about that? Yeah, sure. I appreciate the opportunity to, to plug it. Crossing Fades uh, is available on YouTube and anywhere else you get your uh, podcasts. Um, uh, years of working for the ERLC, I, I could say, um, set me up to uh, to take on controversial topics uh, where, where angels fear to tread. We kind of jump in with both feet or are assigned to, right? Um, so, out of my work in Washington, uh, I had the opportunity to collaborate uh, in a really multi-faith um, environment. Uh, and so I had the opportunity to kind of figure out what it looks like for a theological conservative like myself, who believes in the inerrancy of God's word, uh, to engage in an environment where there are lots of other um, Americans with a lot of different faith backgrounds. Uh, and one of those friends that came out of that was a guy named John Pinna, and uh, he is a Muslim, uh, Ismaili Muslim who also did a lot of advocacy work, has done a lot of development work, um, a lot of education work, and uh, did a lot of government grants. He's a he's an American military veteran. Um, and he and I basically decided about a year and a half ago to take our candid conversations about religion and politics and basically drag them into the public. And so what you have is a Southern Baptist and an Ismaili American Muslim um, who uh, talk religion and politics. And uh, we have a good time. We think it's a unique shtick. And so uh, uh, if your listeners want to jump on over there um, at, at, when they've exhausted your episodes, uh, we'd be welcome to have them. Matthew Hawkins, thanks for joining the Protestants and Politics Podcast. Thanks, Nap. It's been a delight. This episode was recorded on February 9th of 2021. Be sure to check out the Protestants and Politics newsletter. You can find more information about this podcast and sign up for that newsletter at my website, natmasworth.com. Thanks for listening.